Welcome to Building Your Mental Health Toolkit, uh, presented by Women in Chemicals with our partner, Blue Palette. Really excited to have Candace Heidebrecht here with us today to celebrate World Mental Health Day and help us build resilience, gratitude, and self-love. To set expectations of what today's program will look like, um, after we do introductions of our sponsor and Candace, Candice will lead a 45-minute webinar, and we will reserve the last 10 minutes for Q&A and final remarks. If you have any questions throughout today's program, you can feel free to throw those in the chat, and we'll get to them at the end. Or at the end, we will be allowing people to um, unmute and ask their questions personally. So today's event is sponsored by our partner, Blue Palette. Blue Palette is a business-to-business market network solution specifically designed for the chemical industry. The Blue Palette Commerce Platform offers members the opportunity to discover, connect, and act based on the strengths of marketplace insights and real-life networks. You can become a member for free at bluepalette.io. And to introduce you all to today's speakers, Candice Heidebrecht, um, Candace helps people to create and maintain rockstar teams. Through workshops and coaching, she teaches everyone to embrace differences, live authentically, and be unafraid of accountability. Because inclusion is a culture of EQ, Candace empowers teams to apply social science and emotional intelligence skills to start their own team's inclusivity. She spent more than a decade teaching people how to use EQ skills such as social awareness and self-management to build strong reciprocal relationships. She holds an MA in Applied Anthropology with a thesis on organizational change. And with that, I will hand it over to you, Candice, to start today's programming. Thanks so much, Amelia. And I am so excited to talk to this amazing group of women. Um, I am thrilled to be here today. And as I'm getting my slides set up, um, I just wanted to start with some intentions because we are doing Mental Health Day. This is something that I, I don't think we talk about enough. And I'm so grateful that we are getting an opportunity to really spend a good chunk of time today on it. And so with that, my intentions for you today is to get a little inspiration to feel like there's some, uh, some relatability and what I'm going to share with you and also give you some opportunities to take some real action that'll be impactful and meaningful in your lives. And so I really do want your questions. So please feel free to share them at any time in the chat window and we will have plenty of time for Q&A at the end. So this is today, I'm going to spend some time helping you build your mental health toolkit focused on things that you yourself have full and complete control over. Because I think a lot of the times we get stuck in feeling like the world happens to us and we're just sort of carried away with all of the things that are going on and the world can be an awful, ugly place. And people can also be awful and ugly to each other, but we also have opportunities to make it more meaningful and positive, not in a toxic way. I'm, I'm I always say I'm not a fan of, of always be positive because I don't think that's possible, but to be a little bit more kind, a little bit more gracious to yourself and to others. 
And so I'm just going to go ahead and skip to our agenda here. We're going to talk about the keys to yourself in relationships, really what the, the value of emotional intelligence is. And we give you a really brief description of it, but give you some really core sort of insights into what it means and actually how you can use it. We're going to talk a little bit about bias. In particular, of course, you could hear from my intro that I'm very... Um, I'm very much an advocate of creating inclusion at work, and that means addressing bias both in ourselves and each other, but also really just creating space for grace in those accountability conversations. So I'm going to give you a couple of examples and what you yourself can do to respond to bias when you yourself experience it. And then I'm going to give you some practical steps so that you can actually start developing your own toolkit as part of this Mental Health Awareness Day. Okay, so I want to start with a personal story, right? Because emotional intelligence, I'm sure you've heard the term before at least, but what the hell does it mean and who, who would really care, right? So my personal journey started about 20 years ago and I was given the amazing opportunity to manage an orthopedic surgeon's practice at the very young age of 23 years old. Now I managed to have a good resume, strong resume, and I met this he was like the number two orthopedic surgeon in San Francisco. And so he was very well known and very well respected, but he was also known to be a bit of a hard ass, if you'll excuse my French. He, he was known to be really tough. And so here I was at 23 and I'm very ambitious and I'm like, I'm gonna do this. I had been running um, the billing department for a very large cancer treatment center at that time. So I was really sure that I was gonna be able to do this, right? Small single surgeon practice. And we met, we talked a few times. He was like, you know what? I think you've got the right talent. I'm willing to give you a chance if you're willing to like work really hard and, and, and try a bunch of things you've never done before. And I said, yes, sign me up. So first day I start. And what I realized I walked into was a complete disaster. Um, he had no relationship skills. And in fact, what he did was make every single person who worked for him feel like crap all the time. Like that just was his brand. He was very charming at first and he used all of that charm on his patients. And then he proceeded to treat everyone around him as if they were expendable, you know, just worthless human beings. And I signed up to manage this man's business. And so instead of running away, being the ambitious little 23 year old I was, I was like, I'm going to fix it. And so I spent the next three years trying to fix him, which of course, if you are, have ever tried this before, you know that, that it's impossible to fix another human being, right? And so after three years of just complete and utter like debilitation from stress every day, trying to protect the staff, trying to make it be like a fun, happy work environment, which it was never going to be with him in the office, trying to do all the things that I knew I wanted to do and could be as the leader, I, I had to take myself out of it a little bit. And so I took a vacation, first vacation of my adult life really at 26. And I went to Hawaii and I'm sitting on the beach and I'm having this profound realization that the life that I created for myself was in fact my responsibility. This was not Dr. H's fault. Dr. H is just gonna be Dr. H. I signed myself up for this. And not only did I sign myself up for it, I convinced myself that somehow or another it was my fault that he wasn't treating the staff better, right? That if only I could protect them more, that somehow or another it was going to turn out all right. 
And so I had to have this like come to Jesus moment with the Pacific Ocean, where I (laughs) realized was like, okay, if I own my own experience, if it's up to me to create the life that I want, then working for a man who's never going to treat me the way that I want to be treated is not the way to begin. And this idea that if only I could just prove myself enough that he would turn on a dime and everything would work smoothly and the office staff would be taken care of and things would be great at work was the the story that I had been telling myself for so long that it wasn't ever going to change, right? So I, I don't know if you've ever had this kind of profound, oh no moment, like I've done this to myself in that it sort of sounds like you know, I, I somehow or another had entered my own torture chamber and now I was, you know, going to die under the weight of the torture. No, in fact, what it gave me was this profound sense of ownership, which meant that I could control my choices. I couldn't control my circumstances, but I could control my choices. And this kicked off my journey of emotional intelligence because what I came home with was this deep and unerring sense that if I was going to be the leader that I wanted to be, it was not gonna be learning from this man who was the worst kind of leader that I could ever hope to emulate, right? I was only learning leadership from him. And so I needed to take my own control of my own destiny as my own leader and start on this path. And so I read the book, Emotional Intelligence by Daniel Goldman, which was the start of my specific journey. But the key that I took away from that moment and the key that I want to talk about with you guys today is that the power of emotional intelligence is not giving you language to understand, it's giving you tools to understand. So the tools specifically of yourself. So emotions happen, right? Emotions happen every day and they happen to us. And I cannot tell you how many times I've been blindsided by my own emotional reactions to things and been like, where did that come from? I don't even know what that's about, right? And um, to be able to not only take control of the emotional reaction, but actually prevent it from escalating to a total freak out was something that I dramatically needed at that time in my life and has paid dividends now that I'm in my 40s, right? So having the ability to conquer your own fears, your own self-doubts, to live a much more authentic version of yourself comes from true knowledge of yourself. So whether you use the emotional intelligence framework or some other, The keys to the kingdom is, as it were, in leadership, at work life, whether you're a leader or not, in your personal relationships and romantic relationships, are truly understanding yourself and having that strong, deep, and nurturing relationship with yourself. Because if you can have compassion for your own stuff, it's much easier to have empathy for other people and their stuff. Right. Okay. So um, the benefits, the stated benefits of EQ are many. There's lots and lots of studies about it, including that people who have higher EQ tend to have lower stress. They tend to be much more effective leaders overall because they can relate to people and have empathy and be curious and less judgmental and inclusive, all of those things. And really critically, it helps us to diffuse conflict. Right. If we can understand ourselves when we're like out of control and our emotions are all over the place and we see somebody else going through some stuff, then instead of judging them and being like, you just need to shut, you know, shut up and get back to work. That's not the way to diffuse anything. Right. So if you can have compassion for yourself, then you're better able to have compassion for others. So I want to give you an example that 
I'm going to use now and we're going to come back to this later. But I want to just give you an example of a time when uh, my emotions really got the best of me. Even after all of this you know, time, I've spent literally now decades studying and teaching emotional intelligence. You'd think that I would be totally in control of all of my emotions. No, there are still definitely times where I, as my best friend calls it, drop my basket, where I just lose it for no good reason, right? Um, okay, so uh, in, my, in my previous life, I, I um, was a sales enablement leader. And if you've never heard the term, it's okay. Basically, I just was responsible for teaching salespeople how to sell our tech products. And one of the roles as a sales enablement leader is to put on the sales kickoff every year. And so that means several hundred people, if not a thousand people coming together into one big room and getting, getting them excited about the coming year and getting them you know, all educated and prepared on the latest and greatest product developments, right? So it tends to be a three-day event and there's lots of moving pieces and I have to you know, rally all of these executives into giving presentations and being on time in certain places. So it's a lot of coordination, if you will. Okay, so this last one is only a few years ago and uh, it's on day three and I'm exhausted. I'm running on maybe 12 hours cumulative sleep for the previous three days because of course there's always these last minute things that you didn't get done in time. So we have only the award session left, right? So it's like three hours, the award session, and then we're done with the whole event. And so I'm trying to relax and enjoy these last few moments of quiet when the assistant to the CEO comes in and says, okay, we need to make a change for the award session. And I just lose it. I mean, I'm just like, what do you mean? We can't do that. That's not okay. Blah, 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 blah. And she's looking at me like, okay, I don't know how to handle this reaction. Um, and she's quiet and she's like, okay, I can see you're upset, but I, I can't tell him no. So what are we going to do? And I'm like, I need a moment. And so <laughs> I just leave. I just run away. <laughs> so I'm like, clearly not able to handle this in this moment. And that's because I had gotten all the way to the top of my like emotional ability and had just lost it. I just lost it at that moment. I didn't know what to do. Okay, so here's the thing. Emotions are just another form of stress. And so there's some research uh, done by, by uh, some psychologists into the physiological and emotional response to stress. Now, our bodies are designed to deal with threats like a tiger coming into our village, right? That's how we evolved. So our brains are very much wired to deal with very obvious physical threats to our bodies, right? To, this thing could kill me is what our, our minds and bodies are primed to deal with. So there's a trigger event, like you see a tiger. And so your body's flooded with all the stress hormones because it's ready to like, you know, fight or flight or freeze, you know, the, the common responses that we hear to stress, right? We're, we're, we're prepared with all these hormones flooding our bodies. Our, our muscles are ready to go. And we look to each other because we're social creatures we shouldn't be alone. So we're looking to our left and our right, like my people with me, what are we gonna do? Are we gonna fight this thing? Are we gonna run away? Or are we gonna just hold our ground and hope it doesn't see us? What are we gonna do together? That's the, the you know, looking to each other for validation. And then depending on whether or not the tiger goes away, you kill the tiger or you run away to safety, 
then your body gets flooded with the, okay, all right, relief. We're okay. We're back at home. The door is closed. The bolt is locked. We're good. Our body then floods with the safety chemicals, the oxytocin and the dopamine and the serotonin and all of those things, right? So this is what our stress response is supposed to look like. A triggering event, we, we take an action or not. We validate that what we felt or what we experienced was really bad and traumatic and awful, but also we're okay now. And so we're safe and we reset to zero. The problem is that with our modern day threats are not tigers. They're literally like the jerk who says something to you that pisses you off, or you were not prepared in any way, shape or form for the CEO to give you a last minute change to the award session that's taking place in an hour. And it means you have to somehow or another make two hours of work happen in the next 30 minutes, right? Like that's the, the normal kind of everyday stressors we're experiencing. So when a tiger is not the thing that people are, are experiencing, when it's a person, not a tiger, what do we do about it? So there are some suggestions for how to create safety for yourself. Um, and so this is the, how to close that loop, how to get back to those physiological response where your body gets flooded with all of those safety pheromones and hormones. This is what we need to do. So the physical acts are really important. So things like exercise, move your body, run in place, go around the block, do yoga, something to move your body. Deep breaths is another way to create the vasovagal response. So you're actually calming your whole body down. The physiological response will happen with those deep breaths. Laughter and crying are two really good ways of releasing all of those emotions. And especially if you can do those with a friend and getting hugs. This is one of the things that, that the psychologists have found in understanding the stress response, which again is the emotional cycle response as well, is that getting a hug is the quickest way to getting the safety response triggered in your body. So in particular, if you're feeling like you have got the validation and you can move into a hug, great. You shouldn't go from trigger event to hug. Trigger to hug isn't gonna help. You have to move through the whole cycle, right? So validation and then get one of these physical acts. And then the last two, I'm gonna tell you, these are actually really important for sort of ongoing low level stress. So in particular, what I learned in 2020 has been most like, it's, it's in my toolkit and I use it almost every day now because it's so incredible. What I learned is that imagination manifests as either anxiety or creativity. So if you're like me and you deal with a fair amount of low level or mid-level anxiety on a daily basis, just because you were born that way, um, or you've been conditioned to just be anxious because somehow or another it's, it's your default, then the thing to do with anxiety is find something creative. And it should be a physical act of creation, taking pen to paper, painting something. I like working with clay. So doing something, you know, throwing a pot on the wheel or sculpting something, just that physical, tangible, tactile experience of creating something. Maybe you're a crafter, maybe you like to knit, maybe you want to do a, a collage, or it's, you know, um, going shopping specifically to look for an outfit that you're finding that sort of creative outlet, you're imagining something and then turning it into reality. That act is actually the best way to diffuse your anxiety. And then the last one actually really helps with loneliness. So positive social interactions ha have been shown to be the most important thing if you're feeling lonely. And what these are are just the, the little ones, the little everyday things. Like you go get a, get a cup of coffee and you say, you know, good afternoon to your barista. And, you know, oh, I really love your hat today. 
those little like little bits of positive social interaction are so meaningful to our daily lives and we forget about them when we're so busy. My throat was getting a little dry. Got my tea ready. Okay, so those can also happen at your office. Just walk around and you know say hello to a couple people. It gives you these little bursts of serotonin and that actually really helps to counteract any loneliness you might be feeling. Okay, so this is all of the stuff that you need to know about creating emotional safety for yourself as well as physical safety. Remember, we're not dealing with tigers, we're dealing with jerks in the office. Okay, so let's dig into some bias areas. Now this, hopefully you're not experiencing the same degree of misogyny as this poor woman first tried to run the Boston Marathon, was literally physically assaulted as she was just trying to run. Hopefully you're not experiencing that. But I guarantee you, you probably are experiencing, especially if you're the only woman in a room full of 80 people, um, all men, that you're going to have the little, the little teeny constant interactions telling you that you don't really belong here or we don't really respect you enough, right? And so one of the more common ones that I, that I certainly personally have experienced is things like, um, you're in a meeting and you have a great idea that you share with the group and five minutes later, Kevin takes credit for your idea. And you're supposed to just be like, okay, that happened, right? It's not great. It's really not great. It's not comfortable. So let's talk about how we respond to this effectively. Again, we're going to pull out of the emotional intelligence toolkit to use um, some, some of the tools there to be able to effectively respond to this. Okay, so I wanna give you a couple of things first. Context matters. Is this a person who's done this before? Is this a one-off? Do you have a relationship with this person? Is it somebody who you've invested in, like it's your boss or your coworker who you know you're gonna interact with frequently? And so it's worth the emotional effort required to actually bring it to their attention. So I will say in most cases, People are not intending to be hurtful. They're just not aware that they are hurtful. And that doesn't necessarily help you, but it also does require you to help them see your perspective. And that does require some emotional effort. Okay, so um, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, do you have it in you to give them the grace to evolve over time? It's probably not going to happen overnight. You might have to have this conversation more than once. Are you willing to put in that effort and do you, have you already made up your mind about them? Like they're just a jerk and they're never going to change. Or you feel like, you know what? I feel like they are a good person and they might be willing to change if only I could show them that this is something that needs to be different. Uh, if they are and you've decided that they are capable of change, then go for it. If you think they're capable of change, but they're not willing, then is it really worth your time? And then there might be another way to handle the situation. Okay, so if you think it's worth it and you're willing to give the effort, then let's talk about the methods for doing this, both in the room and then separately, we're gonna talk about how to handle it in a one-on-one -on -one situation. Okay. So in the room, Kevin has just taken uh, you know, credit for the idea that you had five minutes ago and your boss, John, didn't actually say anything. And so now he's continuing on the notion that Kevin is the one that had the idea. And now Kevin has responsibility for the project that you had the idea for, right? Okay, so in the room, if this is something you want to handle in the room, there's a couple of things that you can do. So curiosity is one of those great EQ skills. So curiosity oftentimes gets under undervalued um, because curiosity can 
only really happen when it comes from a genuine place, right? So you can't say, can you, can you tell me what you mean by that? That's not curiosity. Oh, can you, can you tell me what you mean by that? It, it takes a genuine sort of question with an openness to that you don't know the answer yet. So that sort of curiosity mindset or growth mindset is one of the ways to kind of diffuse the tension in the room and allow a different kind of conversation. However, tension is actually really important, especially when what, what we know from psychology is that tension is the thing that's required to cause any kind of change to be possible. People don't change because it's a good idea. They change because their current state, the current situation, the way that they're currently operating is actually not working anymore, right? So they have to feel that it's not working anymore for people to actually make a change, right? So um, using restating or challenge statements like, I think I heard you saying that, is that right? Like with some genuine, like, what, how is that, how is that real? Um, or, you know, that's not been my experience, kind of challenge statements create some healthy tension in the room. Okay. And then the last one, of course, if it's really egregious, just say, stop, that's not funny. It's not okay. Like, let them know that you're uncomfortable. These are all very appropriate ways to handle it in the room. Right. Um, but the more effective and where change is more possible is in the one-on-one -on -one situations. And so what I want to focus on here is you have to think about this as being an opportunity to build a relationship with this person. This can't be an opportunity for you to tell them about why you think they're a jerk or why this is wrong. This has to be an opportunity for you to invite them into a scenario that allows them to grow as a person. And that means you have to be a little bit vulnerable with that. You're not gonna be vulnerable with people you don't trust. And therefore you're not gonna be vulnerable with people that you don't care about. Right? You would never try to explain how hurtful it is to somebody who's catcalling you on the street. Right? That's not going to get you anywhere. They don't actually care about you as a human being anyway. You're just an object to them. Right? So if you're, if you're in a situation where Kevin is taking credit for this and John, your boss, is the one that's allowing it to happen, your choice is to talk to Kevin about it, who maybe is the right person to talk to, but I think it's probably more likely that you should talk to John. Right? John's the one that let Kevin get away with it. John's the one that gave Kevin the opportunity that should have been yours, right? And so that's the opportunity for you to speak to John specifically about what you experienced and you have to give him your perspective. One of the most important things that we've learned from anti-bias training is separating intent from impact. And what this means is that most people don't set out to be hurtful. They're not trying to be hurtful. They just really have no clue that what they said was hurtful right? They, they, because it's just not their experience, right? They don't know or understand that you being the only woman in the room every single time means that it's so unlikely that you're going to be the one who actually gets credit for the good idea, or you're going to be the one that actually gets the big opportunity. It's going to go to Kevin, right? That's just what, it, it's just the normal today, right? So he's not going to see it from your perspective of being like, I've been trying to get these opportunities and I had one, and then you gave it to Kevin, man. He's not going to see it from your perspective. So that's the first thing. His intent was to stay at the project done, but the impact was it made you feel small, right? So you have to share with him what you experienced, what it meant to you. 
The second thing is you can appeal to shared values. Now this in particular matters, especially across political divides, because there are a lot of things in this world that we don't agree on. And we're never gonna agree on everything. That's just not possible, right? So when you have a divide that's based on things that, that are important to you, there's still gonna be ways for you to find some shared, shared core values. Now, values are things like the, the most universal one is the, the love or the care or concern for family. That's pretty much universal. Everybody cares about their family, right? So we all want to keep our families safe. We all want to create thriving environments for our families. But there are other shared core values that are probably specific to your organization or to your company. Things like it might be loyalty or it might be trust or it might be customer first, whatever it is. But if it's something that's true to you, you really believe in it, it's so important for you that loyalty is critical and loyalty is also important to John, that you can relate to each other in that way. Like John, you know how loyal I am to you and I know Kevin's loyal to you too, but I also know that you're loyal to me. And this is just one of those things where I felt like you just weren't really being loyal. You weren't living up to the bond and the trust that we have between each other about this. So appealing to that shared value is a way to kind of change the conversations. They're seeing themselves in a different light. All right. And then um, empathy, of course, is really important. Allow them to understand that you can see from their perspective, but also hold them accountable. This is one of the most important and least talked about things, right? Just sharing that you had a negative experience isn't going to necessarily create change. He might say, and this is actually my, my, least, my least favorite apology, I'm so sorry you feel that way. His intent is to help show you empathy, except that what he hasn't admitted to is his responsibility. Right? And so accountability, accountability looks really simple. It's like, oh, I had no idea that I did that. I'm really sorry. I'm committing that I won't do it again. Thank you for, for sharing your truth with me. Something as simple as I won't do it again is all accountability looks like. It, in order for accountability to exist, though, we have to have a little bit of grace. Right? So it goes back to that context question. Can you give them the grace and the space to change? You were expecting them to change but you know it's not gonna happen overnight. And so you can also follow that up with, thank you. So in the next meeting, if this does happen again, can I bring it to your attention in the meeting? Would that be okay? Something like that, right? Make it a dialogue and that's really important. Okay, and so again, if you have any questions on any of this, please feel free to throw them in the chat window and we'll get to this Q&A at the end. All right, so the last thing on bias before we, we move forward is I wanna just, make sure that we talk about briefly gaslighting because I definitely have experienced this. Uh, in particular, there, there have been a couple of people I've worked with over the years in, um, I worked in tech after I worked in healthcare and in tech, it's very, very much a, you know, 10 to one ratio of, of men to women. And so there were, most of the men were very supportive. And I will say that by and large, I worked with a bunch of really, really awesome, amazing guys, but there were a couple that were consistently bad actors. And I can, I can think of one in particular where I thought it was just me. I really did. That it start, our relationship, working relationship started out as being pretty positive. We were talking about you know, a lot of collaboration and doing things together. And then as soon as I asserted my authority on a, on a particular project, then it shifted. And all of a sudden then 
I was finding out about meetings that I was supposed to be in that he was having without me. I was finding out about projects that he was running without me. I was finding out all these things. And it, it didn't make me feel good, but I thought it was just a me problem. And so I talked to my boss about it and we figured out you know, a couple of different ways to manage it differently. And it kept happening. And so six months later, I finally break down and talk to one of my female coworkers. And she's like, that guy, he does the same thing to me. And it turns out that, that it wasn't just us two, that there were a number of women that he just had a particular challenge working with women in leadership positions. And so this was a, a known problem with HR, but I didn't know. I felt alone. And he made me feel like my reactions were over the top and then I was just like making it up right and gaslighting with the with the research and gaslighting is finding it's actually as traumatic as the initial act of bias right so I'm going to move my head so you can see um I, I do love the golden girls um they are squad goals in my opinion <laughs> so my my core advice to you on this is to remember especially as women women build power as coalitions by default that's how we've been socialized, but it also works to our advantage, which means if you feel like you're experiencing bias from a particular bad actor and they're recalcitrant or unwilling to change, then the first thing to do is to squat up. Go find some other women that might have contact with that person and make sure that you have a coalition, that you're validating your experiences with each other. And if it continues and it's aggressive and it's you know pervasive, then it's willing and you're willing to go to HR with it, then I can encourage you to do that again as a coalition, because one of the, the most insidious problems with this kind of underrepresentation is that we often are, you know, dismissed as being like, it's not that bad, right? Like, so Kevin got that one project, really, like, what are you complaining about? But that's piled on top of all these other little things that have been happening over time. And now you know that every year, it, women are 10% less likely to be promoted every year, year over year over year, and it's cumulative, right? So we, we just need to be more proactive for ourselves and for the women that are coming up behind us, right? So uh, squad goals, people, squad goals. All right, so I wanna shift us into practical actions to sort of build your EQ. I've told you a lot about the sort of emotional stress response and the cycle of it, how to manage bias specifically at work, but let's talk about overall tools that you can build and put in your mental health toolkit. So you're building some, some grace, some curiosity, some accountability, and some empathy. Okay, so we are in the great resignation right now. And what this means is that between 50 and 60% of Americans are looking for a new job today. Now, whether you're a leader of people or you yourself count, you're, you're like, I'm one of those people, whatever it is, what we're finding is that the highest correlation for good leadership, as well as the thing that's telling people like, this is why people see people stay for people. They don't stay at good companies, they stay for the managers they work for. So if you are a leader of people, this is another reason to build your EQ. But also if you're looking for a new job, then this is a thing you wanna look for. Look for a leader with high EQ. And in particular, um, there's some studies recently, PricewaterhouseCooper did at the end of 2021 on what people are looking for in their work experience. And these were the three core things. They wanna show up as their full selves. They wanna be their authentic self at work, not just a version of themselves. They wanna just be like, whatever it is, if you have you know, 10 piercings in your ear or you have blue hair or you really love Game of Thrones and you wanna talk about it, whatever it is, you wanna be authentic at work. 
Um, people also really believe in fairness. That's increasingly becoming really, really important, especially for millennials and Gen Z, but it continues to be uh, something that Gen X cares about as well as boomers, believe it or not. So fairness is something that is pretty universal as well. People really believe in fairness. And then the final one is belonging. Now, increasingly, this is more difficult because we're living in a hybrid work world where some people are in the office and other people aren't, or we're very distributed across the country or even in other countries, right? So belonging is something that people are yearning for and would like to build. So the good news is that each one of these is something that you can develop in your own EQ toolkit as well. So if we know that 60% of our lives are spent at work anyway, or more than that in some cases, <laughs> then if you can build these um, experiences at work, then your mental health will already improve. But this also opens up opportunities for you to, to carry this over into your personal relationships as well. All right, so how do we actually go about doing that? Belonging and growth, the three key components to it. So I'm going to move my head again. So can actually read the text here. So self-awareness, belonging, and accountability. Those are the three that I want to focus you on today. So self-awareness, and I'm going to give you a, like an actual example. We're going to go through an example here in just a minute. But um, self-awareness is the sort of combination of vulnerability, being open with your own emotions, like, oh, I am really feeling that right now, but also understanding the why behind it. Like, I might be feeling really uneasy, but I need to know what the source of that unease is. And it may not have anything to do with the fact that I'm just standing in line at the coffee shop right now, right? There's something else going on that's making me feel uneasy, right? So um, vulnerability and understanding yourself in a real way. Those, those two components is actually what creates authenticity, right? So that's what we're going to work on. Um, the other, the other two, I'm gonna, I'm gonna touch on today, but we don't have time to dig into them. But there are areas for you to actually do some self work on as well. So creating belonging really is the development of the skills of curiosity and empathy. So empathy is the being able to put yourself into the shoes of another person and really feel what they're feeling, and default to believing that their feelings are valid, no matter what it is. Because remember, if you're the assistant to the CEO and Candace is in front of you totally losing her basket, dropping her basket over like a small change to a presentation, then you can't be like, you're crazy. Like that's not empathy. Empathy is, wow, you're really feeling stressed right now, aren't you? Like, is there anything I can do? You know, leaning into it. So that's what empathy looks like. And again, that allows people to feel like they're safe at work or safe in a relationship with you. Right. So empathy is the key to that. And curiosity allows you to diffuse your judgment for them. So if you're like, oh, I can't deal with you right now, the best way to kind of diffuse your sense of like they're being really crazy right now is be like, what? What's what's really going on? Right. So curiosity is your bridge into empathy. All right. And then accountability, we talked about briefly in the bias portion. But again, I want I want to center on understanding that people's definitions of fairness are different. And it doesn't necessarily seem unobvious, I guess, right? Like it seems, it seems like that's true, except that even your best friend, like I've, I've definitely, my best friend and I get into lots of deep philosophical and political discussions. And for the most part, we are in complete alignment on our politics, but there have been times where it's something come out of left field where she really believes something that I completely disagree with and it's in the details, but man, do those details matter, right? And so how she perceives fairness and justice for that particular thing that I 
have a completely different perspective on um, can really cause some tension and some friction, right? So um, accountability and understanding that we're, we're here to take care of ourselves and each other and to hold each other accountable for fairness is something that we have to just agree on what fairness is, right? So um, being a, a proponent of the growth mindset that you can always learn something from a mistake, you can always uh, learn about another person's experience, even when you've inflicted harm, it's an opportunity to continue to grow and do better. All right, so let's do uh, the, the most important, I, I wanna tell you, I'm gonna like lean in here. If you take nothing else away from this presentation, this is the thing I want you to know. You are both the narrator and the protagonist in your story. And I'm saying this as if I'm like Oprah right now, but seriously, this is this this was like if I had no other insight or wisdom to share with you, this has been the most profound understanding of my own experience and my own life, and it's given me the most incredible sense of control and power and feeling of gratitude. I'm not the author. I can't control the events that happen to me. I am the protagonist, meaning I'm the main character in my own story. So things do happen to me, but I'm also the narrator, which means I get to say what it means, right? So things happen to me, but I get to interpret what it means, right? So um, how, this, how this sort of plays out in real life, John gave Kevin the opportunity. What it means to me is that I have not done, I have not done a good enough job of bringing to John's attention how much I want more opportunities to do big things. And so my opportunity is not to like go off on Kevin. My opportunity is to lean in with John and be like, okay, listen, so I haven't been as vocal as I should be. And I'm here to tell you today that I really didn't like what happened in that meeting, but I realized what I want, what I really need from you is more opportunity. So tell me what I need to do to get that. What is it that you're not seeing for me? Or what is it that I need to show or prove to you that will give you some, some more um, faith or trust in me to carry out these big projects, right? So I get to change the story of what that means. It's not Kevin's out to get me. It's that I have an opportunity with John to tell him that I want more responsibility, right? So see how that puts you in the driver's seat? Now you're in control of what's happening, not about the actions that happen to you, but in how you perceive the world. Okay, um, and please do yes, put, put things in the chat. All right, so now we're gonna do a little self-awareness exercise. Now, feel free to take a screenshot of this. Um, you also can visit cultivateempathy.com and I'm gonna put that in the chat window for people in the Q&A here, let me just do that. Um, cultivateempathy.com is, is my website. And you can find me at Candace at CultivateEmpathy.com. Um, I have this worksheet available on the um, self-awareness page. So you can feel free to download that or take a screenshot of this. But here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna, we're gonna walk through it. You can feel free to pull out your journal. I recommend writing it down. Um, writing it down, the physical act of writing kicks off a, a sequence in our own brains that allows us to sort of um, tune into our subconscious in a way that just saying it out loud does not. Okay, so we're going to start with the what. So I want you to, to, to pick a moment 
where you felt a strong emotional reaction. It can be recently, it can be 10 years ago, whatever it is. But I want you to pick a moment where you had a strong emotional reaction, okay? I'm gonna go back to the day that I dropped my basket with the assistance of the CEO leading up to the awards. Okay, so what happened? CEO asked to change the awards presentation. And I lost it. I had a really strong physical reaction. I was shaking and I was breathing hard. My heart was pounding. And I was thinking like, I have to find time to do this. This is going to take like two hours of work and I don't have time. We only have an hour until the award show starts. And I'm spinning, 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 spinning. What I made it mean. This is the question. Now, this for you, um, you might have to get into like your toddler voice and just keep asking why. So here's how it goes. Something like, why did I have that reaction? Because I had no time. Why was having no time the problem? Because I was already really stressed out. Why was having no time because you're stressed out a problem? Because I felt like I failed. Oh. So this is what I mean by the toddler and keep asking why. You have to get to the point where you, you almost sort of like slap yourself across the face like, ah, that's what I was really feeling because it's often going to be surprising to you. You're often not going to know. Sorry, I'm having some allergies. So my nose is a little runny. You're going to get to that point where you sort of slap yourself across the face like, I failed? How did I fail? How did I fail by not having time to make a change for this presentation? Here's what I made it mean about myself of doing, doing this work enough. I know I have some shortcuts because I've been doing this work for a long time. I failed is the fear of failure is one of my sort of core deep-seated fears that I'm, I'm going to always fail. I'm never good enough, no matter how hard I try, no, how, no matter how much I achieve. It just doesn't matter. All of my accomplishments are meaningless because there's always more to do, right? I'm so afraid of failure because I'm afraid that I'm really never going to be good enough, right? That's just my core thing. If you've ever done any therapy, this is probably one that you've dealt with as well. This is very common, especially for overachievers and recovering perfectionists, as I like to describe myself. Okay, so I made it mean that somehow or another I failed, that I wasn't perfect, that I wasn't anticipating the needs of the CEO. And in reality, I, there was nothing I could have done differently except to plan for a last minute change to the awards presentation, right? There's nothing I could have done differently. But if I can connect this now to a past pattern, ah, the CEO wanted me to be prepared for anything the CEO was going to throw at me and I was not. That means that I failed the, the leader and that is connected to very much my past pattern of behavior with my own father. And here we are back into the deep-seated sort of ruins of childhood that we're carrying around with us. No matter how old we are, we're still the eight-year-old self that went through a traumatic experience or the 15-year-old self that felt totally lost in the world or the 20-year-old self or the, the three-year-old self, whatever it is. We, we carry around our past with us, right? And it often informs how we operate in the present. So if I can understand my past patterns, then I can, I can see how the story got twisted on itself, right? So for me, the CEO needing a last minute change meant I failed to prepare or plan for a last minute change, which meant I was failing the CEO or that I was going to fail the CEO if I couldn't actually get the change correct because I didn't have enough time to get it done and I was already over my limit. So my opportunity then was for a new story. The new story was, Candace, you are freaking exhausted. 
And no, you didn't expect or anticipate this last minute change, but it doesn't mean you're a failure. It just means you're human. Can give yourself a little bit of grace right now. And then I could do some breathing exercises and allow me to move back into the room. And the next time, just know there's gonna be a last minute change from the CEO and that's all I can do, right? But doing that sort of thing, I could walk back in to talk to the assistant of the CEO, tell her, listen, I'm really sorry for that outburst. I just am exhausted. I don't really have time to do this, but we'll make it work. Thank you for you know, making sure that you're taking care of the CEO. Please tell him I will do everything I can to get it done. And I'm going to go take a couple of minutes and calm myself down and we'll get, we'll get it done. Right. So she could then look at me and say, I know you're, you're, you're doing such a, this event's been amazing and gave me a hug and that closed the loop on that cycle. Right. Like, okay, I'm back at safety and now I can move on with my life. Right. So I hope you can see the importance or the, the power in this self-awareness and unpacking your story because it shifts your energy entirely. It shifts you back into like, Oh, I am the narrator. I can change what it means. And it gives you the, the power to step into a conversation in a much more practical and less emotional way, still honoring the fact that your emotions matter and that other people can still care about you, can be vulnerable. All right, so I wanna sort of wrap things up here. We're, we're almost at time. The, what I wanna leave you with is that the meta-analysis of EQ development says, it doesn't matter what you do to develop your EQ, whether it's just passive learning, reading books, or active practice, like uh, getting an EQ coach or joining an EQ club or doing a self-assessment and intentional practice on developing your EQ skills. It doesn't matter what you do, it's that you do it. Because with intention, it's shown over and over and over again that EQ skills are in fact skills, which means you can develop them over time. You don't either have them or not. It's something you can learn, right? So just be intentional. And specifically, again, going back to uh, being part of the, the shift now to more belonging, more authenticity, and more fairness at work and in our relationships, develop your self-awareness, curiosity, and accountability. These are three books I recommend for you. Or of course, um, for practice, the self-assessment that comes with Emotional Intelligence 2.0 is one that I use um, for one of the clubs that I belong to, and I think it's actually a really good one. So I encourage you to do that. As far as EQ coaches, I'm one. Of course, there are other coaches out there, so feel free to go find one. Or of course, you can get in touch with me about the club that I'm in, and it's a, it's a nonprofit free club to join. So you're, I'm, I'm happy to introduce you to those folks. All right, so summary takeaway for you guys. Um, these are all of the stated benefits of EQ here up at the top in the bubbles. Um, but the action items for you is develop your self-awareness, your curiosity, and your accountability skill set. If you do that, I promise you, you're going to feel much more empowered, much more authentic, and your relationships will be stronger. And that actually is something you can share with your team, especially at work, to make mental health not just something that we talk about passively, but something we talk about actively. And EQ is a way that you can, you can speak about it that sounds more like it's scientific rather than being something like, I'm talking about my emotions today and say, I'm talking about my self-awareness and my perspective today. And it's the same conversation. You're just creating safety by you know, giving people a sense that this is science, not just therapy. All right. So with that, I'd love to open it up to q and I'm going to go ahead and stop sharing my screen here. And let's get to it. Okay, perfect. Thank you, Candice. That was so amazingly insightful. And I have wrote down so many notes for tools that I'm going to use. 
So I know Kylie right now is putting the links um, in the chat for the books that you recommended Fantastic. using uh, the Women in Chemicals Amazon Smile. So anybody who buys using these links that will make a donation to Women in Chemicals. Uh, so thank you so much. And I'm just going to share a screen that will show everybody how we're going to manage Q&A. Um, so if you want to ask a question, we are either going to allow you to unmute and ask your question yourself. Or you can put it in the chat to ask a question. You just click reactions at the bottom bar and click raise hand. Um, and then we'll call on you one by one to ask Candace your question. So again, reactions, raise hand. Um, and I believe we have a question in the chat from Claire McGann. So Claire, do you want to go ahead and unmute and ask your question? Absolutely. So I loved the, the talk, Candace. Thank you so much. And I really liked the comment about the managers and the impact that has either existing managers, but more importantly, as you're interviewing. So do you have any techniques or questions that we can ask when we're interviewing to gauge the emotional, the EQ of a potential manager? Yes, absolutely. It's a, it's a great question. <laughs> Excuse me. So one of the, the you, you can't just come out and say like, Hey, so uh, how's your EQ? Are you, you consider yourself a high EQ person? Um, there, of course, people are gonna be like, yeah, of course, I know exactly what that means. Um, so, so some of the questions um, are really just digging into um, how how they handle situations. Um, so specifically, situations of challenge. So when you have an employee that's having a tough day, how do you normally handle it? Or what is your expectation? If I'm going through a crisis, how would you prefer to handle that? Um, um, how open do you discuss um, um, the sort of negative impacts of what we're going through at work? Or is that not something that you're comfortable sharing at work? So kind of just giving, giving them an open-ended question that allows them to say, you know, whether they're comfortable talking about emotions at all is going to give you a sense. And then the second thing is um, if you share vulnerability with them and they don't reciprocate, that's your most important indicator that they have very low EQ, right? So if you share a story about, um, you know, what's going on in your personal life in an interview and they don't immediately respond with empathy, then you don't have to ask any other questions. You just know right away. So it, just a couple of those techniques is what I personally used both as an interviewer and, and when I'm hiring other people. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. And I guess the question would be like, if you're the manager and you're trying to be vulnerable yes. and have high EQ, what happens if a report isn't receptive to that? Yeah. And then that'll so, be <laughs> Yeah. So I think that the first thing is just to, to say very, very bluntly, like, listen, I, I can tell this might not be something that you're comfortable with, but I will tell you that one of the most important skills you can develop in your career progression is a little bit of self-awareness and vulnerability. It's not something that's normalized across the organization. I totally understand that. And I'm not demanding that you be vulnerable with me, but I just want you to know it's something that I want you to feel comfortable with me and that, um, that I'm, I'm going to actively work on trust with you because I know that that's required for you to feel like you can open up. And so just call it out. Um, uh, the, the one of the things that, that I've learned over time is that EQ can be used for good or evil. And so it's important to know psychopaths actually have really high EQ, but very low empathy. So um, people who have been really manipulated in the past can respond with walls up 
when somebody shares too much with them because they feel like they're trying to be manipulative. And so just being honest about it, like I'm, I'm just trying to make you feel safe and then follow it up with no pressure to be vulnerable. So just be clear on that. Boundaries are really important. So honoring boundaries is just as important as being vulnerable. Amazing, thank you. Absolutely. So I have a question, Candace. Of course. What if you set a really clear boundary with a manager and they don't respect it? Uh -huh. Do you have any tactics for how to handle that? Um, yes. So uh, it depends on the egregiousness of the boundary crossing. Um, so let's let's just use um, or or do do you want to share? Are, are you willing to share the boundary, or you want me to keep it high level? I'm just talking hypothetically here. Yeah, totally hypothetically. Yeah, of course. Okay. So um, I'll then let's use a. Uh, uh, Oh, okay. Here's a really good one. Boundaries on communication time. So this is, this is like, especially for people with families, when you're like between five and seven 30 PM is kid time. And that is sacrosanct. And I'm sorry, but I cannot communicate with you in that time. Um, if you've communicated that boundary and boss calls you at 6 PM and you're like, I'm literally in the middle of bedtime routine. I can't, I can't, I just can't, I can't stop right now. Um, and they're like, I know, but it's an emergency. If it happens once, then you can, you know, let it pass. But if it continues to be a problem, you have to just go back and be like, listen, I understand that you think it's really important. I also, I just have to tell you, this is not a boundary that I'm willing to budge on. It is really important to me. I will be back online at 8 p.m. to handle any emergencies, but I just need you to plan around that for me. It's as if I'm asleep, right? I'm not going to wake up at 2 a.m. To, to, to answer your call unless it's clearly an emergency. So I just need for you to, to make sure that you're trusting that boundary because if this is something that is a, like an absolute no-go for you, then this may not be the right place for me. Like, and, and you just have to hold that clearly to their attention because it may just be that, especially as women, we're often told to just just be gracious and just do it just this once, just for us. Just be, if you, if you really cared, if you really valued your job, you just do this for me. Right. Um, and, and we've been told over and over again that the ideal woman is a selfless woman, but uh, that has to change. Right. So a boundary is important only as much as you tell them it's important and you hold them accountable to that boundary. If it's something that you it's not a hard boundary. If it's a soft boundary, be clear on what the gray area is, right? So a lot of this is just being honest and vocal about what is acceptable and what is not. And, and the only people um, that will respect us is when we demand that they do, right? So you teach people how to treat you, which means you have to correct them when they've overstepped. Does that make sense? Yeah. Awesome. Do we have time for one more question? Do you have a hard stop at two, Candace? I don't. No, we have time for one more. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Any other questions? Again, you can raise your hand. You could put it in the chat. And as we wait for those questions, I will just wrap up here. Um, and then anybody that wants to stay and ask a question can stay on. So I just want to one more time thank our speaker, Candace Heidebrecht and our sponsor Blue Palette for today's um, World Mental Health Day. 
um, building your mental health toolkit program. And thank you to our women in chemicals community for joining. Have a great day. Thanks, everybody.